You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Ben Kissel with Marcus Parks. Hi, hi. So exciting news. We're getting some, what do we call it? Advertising, not, right? Not products. Not products. <laughs> uh, but we are going to get some advertising. And in order to help us out, it would be awesome if you could click the link uh, in the description of this episode. Fill out a little survey so we know what we so we know what you want uh, so the advertisements uh, can actually be worthwhile and not drive you completely insane. And the information is confidential. We don't take emails or names or anything. You're not going to get on any kind of weird list or anything like that. Yeah. It just helps us out. Awesome. Thank you all so much. Hail yourselves and enjoy this episode. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on Shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Ben Kissel. Marcus Parks is on vacation. We have a very special episode for you. A little bit later on, I interview my former college professor, Thomas Holbrook, who is the author of the book Altered States, Changing Populations, Changing Parties, and the Transformation of the American Political Landscape. But right now, I am honored to have a longtime friend and brilliant mind, Saman Arbabi, is with me. Thanks so much for coming on the show again, Saman. Yeah, good to have you, Ben. <laughs> good to have you, Saman. Yeah, thanks. So we'll talk about Iran, of course, and we'll talk because uh, uh, there's a lot to talk about regarding what's happening right now uh, in Iran specifically. Uh, there, a lot of the rural folks are extremely upset because the economy is in uh, is tanking. Uh, very, very quickly, so they're angry. But let's start right here at home first. Have you followed any of this stuff uh, regarding Jeff Sessions and the DOJ? A little bit. So basically what's going on right now is Jeff Sessions has refused to get a special counsel to investigate uh, Hillary Clinton. He says that special counsels should be reserved for extreme situations, which is very interesting that he put that wording in there because that does mean then that Mueller's investigation, the Russian investigation, does fit the mold of an extreme situation. It does. So I thought that was a very interesting sort of point that Jeff Sessions uh, stuck in there as to why he will not get a second special counsel to investigate Hillary Clinton. Well, he's not getting along with Trump, so it's kind of like a... 
Well, he's been getting along, he's not getting along. It's a very bizarre partnership that none of us will ever understand. Yeah, what the, I don't know what's going on either, though. There does seem to be some recent uh, some uh, recent indications, however, that uh, the DOJ and perhaps Barack Obama, the then-majority leader Harry Reid, uh, did get together and actively try to derail the Trump campaign. A lot of conservative media is talking about this. Hmm. I was on Russian television. We're going to talk about the Russian. They only did that with uh, Sand Sanders' campaign. Well, yeah, that was the DNC, yeah. I believe. So now they think uh, a lot of the conservative folks out there are talking about how uh, Harry Reid uh, met with John Brennan, who was then the head of the CIA, and they wanted to do away with Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, did Barack Obama know anything? Who knows? I think there's a lot of smoke there. Who knows if there's any fire? But nonetheless, that's a little news coming from the conservative media outlets right and now. And obviously, we've never had any conspiracy theories. No, in the last never. Year, so so <laughs> this is all solid stuff. We should investigate and absolutely make solid. sure. Earth isn't flat and that kind of stuff. Absolutely solid stuff. So that's a little bit of what's uh, going on there on the conservative media side of things. I believe that Barack Obama probably had plausible deniability, and it goes back to what happened regarding the the, the Carter Page FISA warrant. Mm. There's some controversy over this. Did the FBI use the Steele dossier to convince the FISA courts to spy on Carter Page? I don't like the FISA courts. I don't like secret courts in general. Right. Right. To me, it's sort of like uh, bells go off in my head when I'm like, uh, mm. when I hear the term secret courts, I don't love it. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, that is one of the concerns here. Did the FBI, did the DOJ use the Steele dossier to convince the FISA courts to then spy on U.S. citizen Carter Page? I think that this is a right and a left issue. Sure. Uh, this should be a bipartisan issue. This FISA court does need to be uh, held uh, it needs to be controlled. It needs to be contained. They can't just be sending out uh, warrants for every single U.S. citizen uh, that they would like to, specifically if they did not tell the FISA court that the Steele dossier was partly funded uh, by um, by the DNC it wasn't and Hillary Clinton's well, campaign. It was partly kinda, funded. That's, kind of. That's the thing people don't understand. It wasn't 100. As a matter of fact, I mean, the Steele dossier began uh, with the, uh, not with the RNC, but with Republican candidates, rather, who were looking for dirt on on Donald Trump uh, it hasn't been uh, it hasn't been validated 100% Christopher Steele was no longer working with the FBI the FBI actually canceled their relationship did away with their relationship with Christopher Steele was that because he was inept who knows uh, nonetheless that is one of the talking points going on right now specifically in uh, the conservative media and I think it is something that we do have to take seriously and we'll continue to follow that story as it goes forward uh, that's basically all we know right now. There will be an investigation into that. Jeff Sessions has said that's okay. However, he fell short of a special counsel into uh, investigating Hillary Clinton. So, of course, the Sean Hannity's of the world are extremely upset, which means uh, he probably did the right thing. I don't believe that Jeff Sessions uh, is some unbelievable uh, attorney general who only sticks to the rule of law. Uh, a lot of people on the left right now are praising him because he didn't uh, go ahead with the special counsel. 
He is still a horrible attorney general yeah. who does not believe in states' rights, who wants to get rid of legalized marijuana, who want, has extremely hawkish views on immigration. And uh, the fact that the left is embracing him right now, I think, is ludicrous. And the fact that the right is demonizing him as if he is some sort of, you know, lefty liberal who's playing uh, uh, hacky sack in, uh, at Berkeley. Oh. Uh, both of these sides are absolutely well, ridiculous. And liberals again, are happy if... Like anyone throws a dart at um, Trump right now, like, anything. Like Comey, and, and they'll forget. We hated like these guys. Exactly. All hated Comey, but Comey's like a hero now. The liberals are like, oh, well, you know. And there is some conversation. Did James Comey reopen the Hillary investigation two weeks before the election to save his rear right. end? To he make him the most hated man by the liberals. Now he's right. a different, you know. Exactly. So that's that's a little bit of what's going on nationally here uh, when it comes to the. The ins and outs of all of the uh, special situations happening in Washington, D.C. Let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump and the Russians. Of course, this is always a great fun topic. We can't get enough of it. Uh, So Donald Trump did uh, get rid of, he expelled 60 Russian diplomats, which was much more, of course, than Obama did in December. I believe he kicked out 35. Yeah, uh, de- 30-something. Uh, yeah, of December of last year. Uh, this is, of course, on the heels of the assassination that took place uh, in the UK, obviously by the hands uh, of the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin himself. What do you think that does now when it comes to uh, the relationship between Donald Trump and Russia, of course, he still is hesitant to, to say the least when it comes to implementing the sanctions right. that passed bipartisan past the House, uh, past Congress. So what do you think this means uh, for Donald Trump and his relationship with Putin? Honestly, it's very confusing because it's clear that um, Putin's not happy with Trump. He, he He's not getting things the way he... he expected them so he's you don't think that putin regardless of uh you think he's going to forget about all the positive things that donald trump has done for him in the past uh because of this um i think it's, it's putin i think he wanted something more totally pro-russian 100 percent everything about russian uh, having dialogue with the russians and having a better uh diplomatic ties with them so expelling these guys which i don't even think trump wanted to do i think it yeah. was just under so much pressure that he Felt like now he's need, he needs to do it, right? And it happened really late. It, this, yeah. this, we shouldn't be happy right now because this stuff should have been done a long time ago, right? And he hesitated so much. Well, what does it mean? You know, we hear sixty diplomats expelled. Okay, what does a diplomat do in a foreign country? I'm sure you have a little insight. Well, they weren't in- even we. There were known spies. Okay, so it wasn't like we we. I mean, this was public. They came out and said these were all intelligence officers. Okay, so well, why like would they diplom- even be allowed here in the first place? Well, they, we, every country uses their uh, diplomatic, you know, their embassies and, and their embassies right. to recruit to gather intelligence. We, we do the same thing in Russia and other countries too. Okay, but these guys were. Were obvious like FBI and probably knew exactly who they are and who they, they needed to kick out right and how much they were involved with maybe meddling in our election or whatever so Trump was sort of forced to do it right uh, but again it was too late um, and this Trump this this is the most passive uh, foreign policy president I've ever seen like by far more passive than uh, Bush or yep. even Obama. Oh, definitely was. more passive than George W. Bush. Or even Obama. Sure. Obama yep. was not this passive, and right. he was a pretty passive guy. Like Putin took a took advantage of how you know passive right. Obama used to be. Well, you know that was one of the things I was thinking about the other night. If you look at Donald Trump's foreign policy, you could almost equate it to Jimmy Carter. 
I mean, the lack of intervention. This is worse. You think that Donald Trump is more of a foreign policy dove, for lack of a better term, than Jimmy Carter? I don't think one thing Trump doesn't realize or understand is when you say America first doesn't mean just America as if, like, we shouldn't worry about what's going around the world. This is the only superpower in the world. And you can't be an isolationist like the way Donald Trump wants it to be. Right. You have to watch your interests around the world because right. you have so many enemies. You have Chinese. You have the you have the Russians. You have the Iranians. You have the North Koreans. Right. So like his announcement about pulling out of Syria was like, dude, are you like he doesn't understand that you're literally gift wrapping that part of the world and you handing it to the Iranians and and the Russians. Right. The same way we did it with Iraq. We screwed it. We should have never been in. Of course. But then we kind of just hand it over. And he's doing the same thing with Syria. So uh, isolating United States by thinking mm-hmm. that way, is it, Carter didn't even do this much well, time. You know, it's interesting because Donald Trump doesn't seem to understand the, the difference between ally and adversary, right? We have the situation where he... Uh, he will not do a trade deal with South Korea because he wants to leverage the power that he has with the North Koreans to yeah. theoretically get a better deal with the South Koreans. North Korea, uh, they have people who are born in concentration camps and die in concentration camps. It's the worst administration. It's the worst dictatorship on earth, in my personal yeah. opinion. The people are starving. And for him to equate North Korea with South Korea, what kind of message does that send to the world? Right. I mean, we have the U.K. who are scratching their heads being like, I thought we were best friends. It's sort of why like are you, why are you bringing this other person to the dance? It's almost like his comment about there were some good people on both sides type of thing. It does seem Not that comparable. way. But now, why, that's a great point. Why? What is it? Why can't Donald Trump differentiate between uh, between good and bad or ally versus adversary? What is? Do you think in his mind he's being uh, the world's greatest diplomatic president? Because it doesn't seem to be really coming across that way. I think uh, from reading whatever I had to read up to this point about his understanding of Russia, in my opinion, I think he's always been really fond of Putin. Yes. Because Putin's like exactly what he wanted to be. Extremely rich. Right. Popular. Um Amongst his people, and also very powerful. His, he's got a, a, a tremendous, you know, amazing military, which Donald Trump didn't have. And he always looked up to to Putin. And I think he, in in his mind, he always wanted to be in his fraternity and right. and meeting this guy and being like buddies and opening up Russia to his own businesses right. and kind of these guys smoking cigars and talking about things with Ukrainian and Russian prostitutes around their lobby. Right. I, and, and I think that was his understanding when he came into this game and he without under, realizing that these guys are adversaries. Right. And you're not running a Trump organization. This is the United States government. We've had this long po- policy about what the Russians are mm-hmm. and what they oppose. And, and we should never, ever extend an arm to these guys and be so passive. Right. And, of course, Donald Trump, uh, he's trying to get some uh, buildings over there in Moscow, I believe a hotel. Right. Uh, there's definitely a conflict of interest there. What's the difference, in your opinion? And I want to then we'll kind of spread out here and talk about uh, – well, first of all, I wanted uh, to point to hit on a point that you made regarding Donald Trump loving Vladimir Putin. He does go to meet with these foreign leaders, yeah. whether it be Duterte uh, in the Philippines or and Xi Jinping. And he ends Jinping, up loving them. And he ends up loving them. That's and, what and, I'm worried about North Korea right now. And adapting some yeah. of their policies. Adopting right. some of their policies such as death penalty for drug dealers. When he went to France, he came back. He wants to have a little carnival with our military stuff and it, have a military parade. He, he was. All, yeah. he, he, you know who he, he reminds He's like the kind of guy that he listens to the last guy in the room. Right. And 
if I can see this guy go to Gaza, meet up with Hamas, and 20 minutes later he'd come out yelling Allah Akbar with like a suicide <laughs> vest. He, 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 he's so if it easy could fit to, around him. Yeah, yeah. And, and he likes tough guys. So he he's loves easily manipulated uh, by these guys. And he saw he, he sincerely believed Putin. Right. As if Putin would have come out and be like, yeah, I did it, you know. And, 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 and he's easily. So I think you what know, he does with North Korea is a dangerous thing, too, because what is he, he, what is he going to go in there and what is he going to come out with that's actually good for us and not just good for North Korea? Yeah, that's a great point. He does seem to cherry pick some of the worst policies or in uh, the French Macron's case, some of the dumber parades. Right. Uh, he cherry picks the worst ideas that these dictatorships and North Korea or rather China, obviously North Korea is a dictatorship, China obviously on that path. Now that Xi Jinping has made himself president for life in Ever. the Constitution, president forever. What is it about Russia? I recall George W. Bush and Putin. I, I recall George W. Yeah, Bush looking right. into Putin's eyes and just, I trust him. I trust him. I looked into his eyes. Obama talking to the then president of, uh, of Russia, saying that we're going to, he's going to have more wiggle room after the election of 2012. The reset button, reset button uh, right. that Hillary Clinton uh, wanted to push as um, Secretary of State. Secretary of State, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. so... How is Donald Trump really different than Obama and Bush when it comes to dealing with Putin? Because it does seem like the U.S. has been willing to just give and give and give and give. And at this point, for Putin's gotten everything that he wants. Right? Now, the, the third different president. Mm. And Putin's gotten every single thing that he wants and more, uh, almost getting the Baltics back. I mean, my God, the guy is just taking over there, as you mentioned, with the Iranians. What's What's... What would have to change? What U.S. foreign policy would have to change to rein in this guy? I mean, at this point, we're, all, we're, we're, he's getting so much power, and no one seems to be doing anything. It shows he's a smarter dude by far, and that's one of the reasons he's very popular, because the more people see this guy in power and all these American presidents come and go and the United States just getting weaker, right. the more popular he becomes. The other thing is I think our biggest problem is we never – have long-term plans for any of our foreign policy strategies well Nothing. we can't can we no we can't because all these every election these guys run things like a popularity poll they promise stupid things just because it sounds really good for example like obama's thing about pulling out of iraq it sounded really cool you know but right. that wasn't necessarily in our best interest and neither was going in going in of course so uh, we never have long-term plans or uh, ideas about what we want to do in middle east and especially with russia you'd think we have some kind of understanding at this point because right. we've been dealing with them since World War II, uh, even before that, and and uh, Cold War was a whole different thing. And these new guys are are again um, not dealing with Russia as a both democratic and right. a republican long term plan. I know you have great insight into intelligence, obviously, uh, given your history. When, when I'm looking at the map now, it looks like so we have Xi Jinping in power forever. Russia, Putin's there forever. Uh, North Korea, he's there. Uh, you know, uh, Kim Jong Un, there forever. It seems as if Iran, they're there forever. We're going to talk about that revolution yeah. or the uh, the uprising there in a second. How can the U.S. compete if every four years we're getting new leadership with new policies? That seems a little bit scary to me, specifically if you look at the tariffs, for example, that Donald Trump uh, is imposing to talk about uh, China and their um, uh, intellectual property manipulation. They have horrible intellectual property laws. They've right. taken a lot of our uh, tech uh, uh, ideas, implemented them. There's a lot of theft happening on that. But when it comes to a trade war, 
aren't the Chinese going to win? I mean, Xi Jinping just has to wait it out until the next administration the comes and, yeah. uh, and, and, and reverses it. I think Trump was the best thing that could have happened to China and, and Russia. And every day we spend with this guy in the White House, another bigger step they're taking forward towards a better economy and a sure. better military and a better alliance when we're going completely the other way around. We've abandoned our allies really around the world. We hate the Canadians. We hate the Mexicans. We hate NATO. We hate everybody. And, and, and this whole America first policy is a problem. This is not what is good for America. But, you know, his approval ratings right now is going up. 42%. How do you explain his approval ratings going up? I mean, well, the same way he freaking won. I mean, how could you ever explain that? Well, we get into that a little bit with my con- uh, in my <laughs> conversation with Thomas Holbrook regarding the Electoral College, some gerrymandering, some redistricting. So we do touch on uh, on that issue. It just seems like if his approval ratings continue to climb, uh, and obviously we're talking eight points uh, beneath 50%. I mean, the bar was pretty low to That's begin with. the economy is doing okay, and they think it, they owe everything to this guy. It, I mean, will is it possible if, if Donald Trump meets with Kim Jong-un, they negotiate some— That guy's not going to put away his nukes. First of all, he has them. So we're not, we're not talking about a regime that would take— take them another five, ten years and billions of dollars to get there. He already has it. So there's nothing that we can do or anyone can do that he's going to be like, you know what, I'm going to get rid of these plants and I'm going to get rid of my bombs, whatever. He's not, that's, that's to his survival, that's the number one priority to hold on to these nukes. We're right. not, if you think Trump is going to go in and walk out with a denuke North Korea, that's a dream. Well, Kim Jong-un does seem to be a little bit more pragmatic in some ways. Again, North Korea is horrible. It is the worst administration on earth. I think it's even worse than Iran, but we're going to talk about Iran in a There's second. nothing like North Korea. Uh, nothing no, like yeah. North Korea. North Korea doesn't uh, even belong on this planet. It is an alien yeah, universe. It's a, different, it, it's it's a really black is. hole. However, Kim Jong-un, he just met with the leader of China, again, Xi Jinping. That was the first time since 2011, yeah. and I don't believe that uh, that ill, Kim Jong-il, his father, I don't believe that he met uh, with Chinese leadership, or if he did, it was extremely rare. It does seem as if Kim Jong-un wants to be seen as a bit of a reformer in his own right. Uh, so perhaps they will be able to negotiate something although we have a situation now where john bolton is taking over and john bolton who i know you know is one of the most hawkish people that you can possibly imagine he wants to straight up invade north korea he wanted to do away with the un i mean so we have a president who is talking about i'm going to make a peace deal it's going to be the best peace deal and then the people around him are like well let's go blow it up who's he going to listen to i i don't think um well, Trump is not – he was against the war with Iraq. He's yes. pulling out of Syria. I seriously doubt he's ever going to start a war with any other country. I don't see it happening either. No, I don't think Bolton's – I mean, if Trump hasn't listened to anyone else even smarter than Bolton up to this point, yes, uh, he's not going to go and listen to Bolton start a war. That's not his thing. He's going to lose his supporters. Uh, it's against everything he believes. He's not into that thing. He's not even staying in the places he should. You know what I mean? So he's not going to start a war. But right. what the Koreans and the Chinese already did, they're outsmarting Trump already. Whatever's going to happen, and from if I had to put my money down, I'm going to put it on the smarter guys. And those guys met up already. They probably have a plan that's mm-hmm. going to be better for both North, North Korea and China. Because, again, with North, we can't deal with North Korea unless we don't have the Chinese on board. Right. That's their lifeline. Of course. And right now, the Chinese 
and the North Koreans have more in common and an interest against our interests than ever before. It's fascinating. You, know, you get this comparison of Trump uh, to Reagan, and I, I don't see it. I think it's a very spurious relationship at best. Reagan was peace through strength. Donald Trump seems to be the inverse. He seems totally. to be peace through weakness. And when we talk about yeah. this, is what I was talking to one of my more left-leaning friends uh, the other day, and obviously, you know, I'm a moderate person uh, here myself, but um, he was talking about how he's worried about the U.S., uh, about war and things like that. And I was talking to him uh, similar to what you just said. I don't believe that Donald Trump is no. an interventionalist. That's one of the things uh, that he campaigned on, and he, and he does seem to be sticking to that for now. Who knows how long that lasts? But there's also an equal risk in not intervening, right? Trump is not a tough guy. You know, he, he reminds me of that drunk guy in the back of a pickup truck right. driving by and just cussing at everybody and, and threatening people. That's what Donald Trump is on right. a Twitter. But he is not, he's, not a, he's not a tough guy. He actually looks up to tough guys. He's, not, he's only bully to, like, on Twitter to certain people and things like that. Right. He's like Johnny Hollywood. But he's not close to what Reagan was. He's not close to what any traditional Republican has ever been. Right. Even the most horrible conservatives have always looked at the Russian situation different. They've come on board with the Democrats and our foreign policy towards the Russians, and that has become like the, the main point of, of any right-wing movement up to this point. This guy is totally the opposite. He's right. not. He's super soft. And uh, he's not the tough guy people think he is. All right, let's jump into uh, Iran. So obviously there has been a lot going on. Uh, we go back a couple of years when the uh, when the um, uprising happened the first time. A lot of folks in in urban Iran were upset. They were upset for of uh, because of the social conservatism of the leadership of Iran. But now the economy has collapsed, and there's a lot of folks in the rural areas right. who are now extremely upset with the leadership in Iran, which is the new uprising that's occurring. So can you just give us a little bit of a back history on that, of, uh, you know, sort of a modern history on what's going on with Iran and why so much um, anger and resentment right now from the rural folks uh, directed at the leadership? Well, in 2009, it, it was, um, it all happened over uh, the re-election of conservative President Ahmadinejad. Mm -hmm. And it was about fraud. So people got when the first protest in 2009 started because people believed this was a fake election and right. this guy should not have won. So you had like the academics, you had the students, you had the uh, people from Tehran and the urban cities come out first. That was a whole different thing. And right. It was huge. This time around, it's different because we had the 2015 Iran deal with Obama. Expectations went up. Sanctions were removed. People thought, again, like, okay, this guy uh, made a deal. Uh, our lives are going to get much better, and that didn't happen. Immediately, they did what many of us, including myself, because I was against the deal, knowing why. And I knew because the Iran deal is not going to end up working out for the people. Mm. They're going to take this money in. They're going to feed it into their revolutionary guards and their military wing, right. which is exactly what they did. Mm -hmm. There's 70,000 Iranian troops in Syria in Iraq, in Yemen, all over the place, they're very active. So they put that money, instead of helping people, into expand, they're expanding their regime. What are they spending right now on military? A lot. Uh, this guy. I Ro heard numbers as high as 35%. Rouhani, this guy, the, the reformist guy, he's put, um, he's increased the IRGC budget, the Revolution Guards budget, to 42%. 42% of 40 the nation's GDP. It's going, yeah. So, I mean, how long can people this sustain? Are, and he's raised taxes by 11% to 
basically he's 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 they're spending more money into the in in in, in these wars right. than the country is actually making out of oil and natural resources. Pe- people's taxes are now funding the war. Okay. So that explains why the economy is collapsing and why people were pissed off because you're talking about people who haven't been paid in six months. Right. And these guys were from rural areas and, and from factories, whatever, who who went across like in 80 different cities across Iran and right. protested. And just a little perspective there on, on 42%. I mean, that number is insane. Yeah, for a country uh, that's not – yeah, exactly. North Korea, for example, they spend 24%. Russia is 5% of their GDP on military. And I know we have a huge, bloated, disgustingly large military budget of $6 billion here. It's still 3.5% of our GDP. So how does 42% military expenditure – I mean, what do you la- – how, how long can you last with that? But I mean, how, yeah, that's why you have to increase people's taxes. Well, right, but I mean, so you got when people, but they're taxing it, people who are poor, right? That's what's that's exactly what's going on, right? When you give a bunch of stupid clerics oil and a military and a country uh-huh. to run, that's what's going to happen. They don't know anything about the economy. These guys mm. think, okay, the Americans screwed up in Iraq and in Syria. Let's take advantage. Let's expand I mean, our, our, our is, and they have they've done that very well. Okay, so but inside the country they're neglecting people, and that's the danger they need to worry about. Is the point for them to expand into Syria, take it over? They have eighty uh, percent of Syria is now under under the uh, Assad control and the Iranians. Are they able to monetize that? They're they're building military bases inside Syria right now, right but next door to, to Israel. On the on the global market, are they able to sell oil from Syria and 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 reap the rewards of that? No, this so is completely how they- a, a strategical military thing for them, but it's not an income. It's it's expanding a mil- your 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 power and your influence. That's but, all it is. But is the goal to inevitably be able to use the resources of Syria for economic gain? No, because Syria has no resources. We're, we're the, the Iranian government is. Sp- is funding and helping the Syrian uh, economy right now. They're spending billions of dollars in Syria so people can function in Syria. Syria doesn't have anything. They went through a horrible civil war. They didn't have a pot to piss in before. The Iranians are, it's like they're Puerto Rico, and except Trump didn't spend much in there, but these guys are spending a lot of money in Syria to right. keep it running. It's absolutely devastating. So I'm just, it, it's hard for me to understand the point other than just having a bunch of new land, but if you're not going to be able to yeah, use I mean, it, anything. It's like you're asking able- me what was Ben Laden's environmental policy. He didn't have any. That's, <laughs> right. that's what these guys are about. This is about expanding their military, Okay, and they hate Israel. Of and course. They, this is giving them a highway from Tehran through Iraq and Baghdad all the way straight to Damascus. Right. So in that, in that way, militarily, if you think about it, it's fantastic. Mm. But uh, – is it the right thing to do f- right. when your own people are, you know, protesting, hungry? dying? Yeah. Uh, of course, we have the situation happening in uh, in Iran. Uh, there was the very famous picture of the woman uh, yeah. her, taking her jo- uh, hijab off. Um, w- w- do you think that this new movement is going to be enough to actually create some social change? And get that administration out of there, or is this going to be snuffed out like it was previously and before that previously as well? Um, the gap between these protests are getting tinier and shorter and less every time something happens. Like the hijab thing you're talking about mm-hmm. actually came right after the main uh, protests about the economy. So then all of a sudden women rose up and they started protesting right. compulsory hijab. Um, so, yeah, I mean— 
it's obvious that this this is not going to last. How long? How much longer is it going to last? We don't know. But if anyone who can put up with mm. these people and stand against this regime and do anything about it is actually women, because yeah. they're peaceful. They're uh, they're as- asking about their basic rights, right? Not to wear a freaking hijab when it's they crazy. walk out, and the and it's very hard. It's very difficult for the regime to harm them because well, they're doing it so peacefully. And and it's not like they're breaking banks and l- lighting up buses on fire and shit right. like that. They're asking for their basic rights and right. they're doing about it the right way. Well, that's what's so confusing in this country. I don't think we fully understand. We have like Linda Sarzar out there talking about how the hijab is is free and all she's, this kind of stuff. She's a hipster from Brooklyn. Has nothing to do with the actual reality of what's going on in Saudi Arabia and Iran. Well, that's what I want to talk about. Let's get into that because I just sixty minutes just did an, uh, did an interview with the new leader of. Saudi Arabia, a supposed reformer. By the way, a quick side note, you got to check out this great story on on real sports, as a matter of fact. It's about the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, child uh, camel racing. Have you heard of this? It was unbelievable. It is literally child slaves. It, it has recently ended. The children have been replaced by robots. I know this sounds crazy. I've heard about camel jockeys and stuff. No, but this is it real. was actual slave children. I mean, it's the story of Anakin Skywalker. It's absolutely insane. I found it. Uh, well, I watched it uh, on HBO, but you can find it on YouTube. Just Google uh, child uh, camel racing. It is so disgusting. These children are violently sexually assaulted. Oh, wow. They're given estrogen to stunt their growth. It has since been uh, deemed illegal. The children are now grown adults, but they are not grown. This is uh, in Saudi Arabia. This was in uh, the UAE oh, and wow. surrounding areas. So check out that documentary. Uh, it is it is horrifying and so sad. We have to remember the slave trade is alive and well globally. Yeah. You know, we think about how you know it's all it's we we pretend as if the past isn't uh, you no. know um, isn't the present and it is. So uh, going back to Saudi Arabia, the sixty minutes interview was really a massive fluff piece on this guy. Um, first of all, do you think any reform is going to be done? And second of all, there is still so few rights for women. The fact that they are touting uh, any kind of um, reform is totally ridiculous to me. Some has happened, which is a big step for Saudi Arabia. What has happened specifically? Oh, yeah, for example, women are allowed to drive now. But don't they have to be accompanied by a man still? I think they they took that away. Now oh, they took that drive. away. Okay. They have high executive uh, female CEOs. They have sure. politicians in the parliament. Now. Okay. They have, they have ministers, female ministers. Um, they have to take this. The new guy has taken some steps forward. How much praise should we really be heaping here? Because I watched that 60 minutes interview. They're like three steps outside of a cave. But it's, okay. a, it's a good step out. So it, it but the guy is like he's a young, clueless guy. Like he's not necessarily. OK, that's one issue. But then they're doing so many horrible things in Yemen. Right. With the weapons we're giving them. Yeah. Uh, so Saudi Arabia is not, I mean, it, it's made some progress in some ways, but it's also still sh- same shitty country well, don't even Well, don't even think about gay rights. I mean, they're no, still no, being no, murdered no, whenever. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, uh, the, the 60 Minutes interview that I'm referencing, in the credit scene, first they're talking how much reform is going on. In the credits, they talk about how their producer was there and she was forced to wear the hijab because the 
religious police showed up and forced her to put this thing, a scarf over her head. I, I'm just not feeling as if uh, the Middle East or Saudi Arabia in general is is nearly, it, it's not even close Saudi uh, Arabia to, being, is, to being reformed. No, it's a pretty backward country. And ironically, it's it's not. What's the relationship right now with Iran and Saudi Arabia? Obviously, we're giving a bunch of cash to the Saudis and vice versa with the oil and all that kind of stuff. Uh, do they do they dislike each other? Obviously, Iran doesn't dislike Saudi Arabia as much as they do Israel, for example. No, right now Israel and Saudi Arabia is actually uh, they're even because really, if you you know, uh, actually, there's a secret alliance now being built between the Israelis and the Saudis. And just like last week, they allowed international flights from India to Tel Aviv to fly over Saudi airspace, which is huge, historic. Okay. It's a big thing. The common enemy that's actually brought the Israelis and the Saudis together, and the Egyptians have already been on board for a while, is Iran. Iranians mm. and, and the Saudis are uh, like a Coke and Pepsi thing okay. within the fundamentalism of Islam. You have the Shiites and the, you have the Sunnis. And in both countries... Islam is a political system. It's not you go to church on Sundays. It's how your entire constitution is based on. Right. So they've never liked each other. And this is uh, the, the, the rivalry has been very tense um, between the Saudis and, and the Iranians to cutting off all diplomatic relations and being very hostile towards so each other. So how does Iran survive? I mean, again, 42% on military. Their people are extremely upset. They're rioting in the streets. They got the Saudis. They got the Israelis, the strongest military in the Middle East, no doubt the Israelis. It's the U.S. military, basically. Uh, how does Iran survive this? Is it just Russia? As, is it, it, what's, well, it, no, Iran is still under sanctions, like, for buying military weapons and stuff. Iran's never been a direct threat. They've always harassed the United States. Right. They've done some terrorist attacks here and there. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's, But it's never had a good, powerful military. It's never been a serious threat. But the more you let it go and not do anything about it or take the wrong steps about it, they know how to build a bomb and they understand what happened right. to Iraq and what is going on with North Korea, and they'll go that way. But Iran's never had a, a powerful. It, they don't because because of the sanctions, no air force, no navy. But they've learned how to adapt and do like how to harass you and be very good at it. And right. they know the the Americans mm. wouldn't attack Iran because they don't have the manpower to invade a country. Like or the that. willpower. Or I the don't willpower. Think. Yeah. You don't want to see two thousand American soldiers die anymore. So no. they're playing that game. Well, but at the same time, they're using they're taking advantage of what's going on right now uh, with United States. And they've built a very powerful alliance with the Russians and the Chinese. So it's the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians. Would you say— And North I mean, Koreans. Because and the North Iranians Koreans. got most of their uh, missile technology. They literally bought it from North Korea. And so they're in a strict uh, alignment, you think? They're, they yeah. are They are uh, uh, a, a global this, alignment. They've done that. And, and on, on the other side, we've completely abandoned our allies in Europe. Right. So do you feel— as if uh, with the with the Russians and the Iranians working together, uh, Assad is still in power. They, uh, they saved Assad. They, they saved Assad. Assad was gone. So yeah, was, what is his? I mean, obviously, both of his arms are uh, are are, are held up by strings by Putin uh, and the leadership of Iran. Uh, where, where does Syria end up going? I mean, if if are, is it possible the Iranians and the Russians end up butting heads if uh, if uh, no. Putin wants to have more of a control in Syria than the Iranians would like him to have? No, the the uh, the. 
Putin is very smart. He understands that like you can't have a bunch of Russians running around in Syria, but the Iranians can uh, because mm-hmm. of their cultural background, because of their religious, uh, their because the Alawites or Assad's, which they're a minority in 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 Syria, they're Shiites and Iranians are Shiites. So uh, the the way this things worked out is the Russians have been in the air, the Iranians have been uh, been on the ground, have worked things out together. Russia's behind the whole. Sc- Seen and right. without their military, without their intelligence, uh, mm-hmm. the Iranians and Assad's military would not have been able to successfully defeat ISIS. So see, uh, Russia's always going to be there, but it's a franchise. They don't have to be there on the ground. The Iranians are there on the ground, and they're using the Lebanese Arabs, the Sh- uh, Hezbollah uh, mm-hmm. militants, to also uh, help them. We hear often that uh, ISIS is on the run. ISIS has been defeated. The caliphate is destroyed. What are your thoughts on that? Because these are very broad ideas, broad notions. What does ISIS actually look like to you right now? Well, they're gone. They're, it doesn't seem like... Is it going... I mean, as Al-Qaeda turned into ISIS, what becomes? What comes next, do you think? What happened is we neglected the battlegrounds by pulling out of Iraq and not watching and keeping an eye on Syria. If you remember, Obama called ISIS a JV team. Yes. And 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 doing so gave these guys the opportunity to eat this huge, massive land between Iraq right. and Syria and create their own land or caliphate or whatever it was. And only much later, we got involved after many chemical uh, attacks Weapons, by yeah. Assad and the Russians were already involved. And now, again, we're pulling out. Right. Trump just announced that which he wasn't supposed to announce, I guess, that we're moving, out, we're getting out of Syria. So basically, Syria is in control of uh, Russia and Iran more so than it was before, because Syria has always had a very strong alliance mm. with the Iranians and Russian. All their military is Russian, but now because of the chaotic situation that happened, there will be a much more, much more stronger foothold in Syria as too far as like the Iranians be, uh, uh, creating a military base and a navy base inside Syria and permanently right. being there. And same with the Russians. The Russians have bases in there now, which they didn't have before. But right. now Assad knows he really needs them in. Right. And they know that, you know, let's take this horrible situation and, and towards, like, make a good out of it and th- th- this time go in there and stay in there f- uh, for, for as long as we can. Do you feel as if this is the most destabilized we've been globally? I think so, yeah. I think so, because Cold War's slightly back in, yeah. a, in even a worse way because now we're seeing more destructive weapons right we see a much more uh, we see much more hostility out of putin than we ever did from the russians before mm-hmm. north korea is a disaster i mean back in the day if you said there's three percent chance of going into a nuclear war today you would have been like you're crazy right but now it's actually it, it's, it could happen <laughs> it could i mean you know i do think that that has that tension uh, has been a little bit alleviated uh alleviated a little bit with uh with the potential uh, north korean talks i mean last year around uh you we know to worry November, about russia that's the, that we need to worry about russia that's more than the, the north koreans yeah north koreans uh First of all, they don't have the military Russia has, and they're not going to do anything to us unless we do something to them. Right. Russians are actively undermining everything we do. They're involved in hacking, uh, stealing our technology. Same with the Chinese. Right. 
we've basically built the Chinese new military. They've taken everything we had and developed their navy and and, wow. uh, and their air force. And the Russians are actively spending more money on more destructive weapons. And the Russians are have taken a very different turn this time because we, we've always had nuclear bombs. But this guy's making... An, the kind of bombs today that if you dropped it on a country, you wouldn't be able to use that land for decades. Mm. Before, it used to be some bomb exploding above the ground right. and, uh, you know, radiation would go away and, you know, you'd come back. And This guy is literally making things that would destroy the planet forever. Right. And, and that's, he's a much tougher guy to deal with. And we've never been this weak. Our policy has never been this lame ever. It is one of the greatest ironies of having uh, Donald Trump as president. His, yeah, his foreign policy, the weakness of, of foreign yeah, policy. But you know, at some stuff. at some point though, as well, I, I do think anti-interventionalism is is can work as well. Uh, it just has to be done not like uh, this. properly. This is not this is not right. You know, he he reminds me of that you know, the idiot in the middle of a NBA game who comes on court and throws a half you know half court shot. Donald Trump did that on November 8th, and he, he got it in. He got the ball in. Right. Now, all of a sudden, everyone thinks, oh, wow, if he got it in once, he's always going to get it in. He's, yeah. he's, he's, he's that guy. But he's not. He, he, he should have never been elected, and he's been a disaster since day one. Well, you know, it's interesting. Yep, the fact that we're, they're touting high approval ratings when they hit 42% is a testament to what you're talking about. Uh, obviously, um, a very controversial presidency. And fingers crossed, uh, we get through it. And I think that, you know, it's, it's we, I asked the professor here uh, coming up what he thinks about, uh, you know, the future, and you can listen to his answer. It's, uh, it is definitely a fascinating time. Let's come back domestically just really quick to wrap it up. Uh, what are your thoughts? We got the census coming up. Uh, what are your thoughts on just uh, immigration, domestic policies in general, Attorney General Jeff Sessions doing away with states' rights, going after marijuana, uh, sanctuary cities? Uh, as a person uh, who is an immigrant, uh, what do you think? Wow, that's a lot of stuff. I think this thing's going to drag on and go back and forth between both sides of the aisle for for, for a while till like the next president comes and it's going to get everything's going to get undone. I don't think we're going to have a wall. I don't think the DACA yeah. thing's going to be the way Trump wants it. I also don't think um, people should be comfortable walking around the streets yet because uh, we have so many, so many uh, right. with the Muslim ban. It, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster. And right of now. course, to that point regarding the wall, we talked about the budget uh, deal a lot on the last episode. Uh, he wanted twenty six billion. He got one point six billion. And uh, they wanted Pentagon to build it. <laughs> yeah, it has gone from Mexico uh, paid for it to now the Pentagon. Right. He wants to take it out of their budget, which uh, is. He insisted uh, on it's, something it's extremely not, it, stupid. It has never been done and before. And now we might have to do something really stupid yes. because a lot of stupid people voted for something really stupid. Well, I don't. I don't see. Uh, I don't see the wall being uh, built either. I have no, to I say. mean not unless he, he. I mean, he does what he promised not to do and used our own money. Right. Exactly. Pentagon could do it. Yes, I suppose it's a. It's a very hey, he large got his budget parade. So. so. He did. Yes, he did. Uh, all right. That's Saman R. Bobby. Thank you so much for coming on. Anything you, you want to press? I know you're like a secret person. So No, I'm not a, I'm not a secret person. I'm just... Find him on Twitter at Saman R. Bobby or Samanism. 
Uh, no, it's the first one. Yeah, the other one's my Insta. Insta. Oh, Instagram, yeah. Samanism, and uh, Twitter, Saman yeah. R. Bobby. But um, I, I try to stay away. The social media is so bitter these days. It's so dude, salty. Honestly, I've been doing the exact same thing. My girlfriend got off it entirely, and I've just been going on, doing a post, and trying to get off. Yeah, it. don't, 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 don't try to read things. And no, the problem man. with these things is you surround yourself with. Negativity, dude. Right. It's not like, you know, you, you, it's not. And honestly, what I did, I just went and I bit the bullet. I got the Times app, I bought the Washington Post app. I got, uh, um, what was the conservative one that I got? Uh, I forget. I just bought it. It's four bucks a month or something like that. And that's just, it's just go to the source uh, because Twitter is such a strange filter. Get AP, and, Reuters. Yeah, all that stuff. Get all of put that. Put away the anchors and the hosts. I mean, except Ben Kissel, of course, of course, of all time. Yeah, naturally. Get to the facts. But yeah, I agree. Social media don't. And, you know, you see it and you realize as soon as you start posting negative stuff yourself, you're like, oh, I'm just becoming the trolls that I hate. Yeah. Uh, And if you delete the name, if you delete your own name and start reading your shit, sometimes you're like, what an asshole. Oh, that's me. uh, (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone. Coming up right now is my interview with uh, political science professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Thomas Holbrook. Enjoy this interview. All right, on the phone with me right now is my former college professor. He is the author of the book Altered States, Changing Populations, Changing Parties, and the Transformation of the American Political Landscape. I am honored to have Professor Thomas Holbrook with me. Thank you so much, man. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Good to see you. It looks like you're doing well. I'm doing I'm doing all right. Um, uh, and it looks like you're doing very well also there in the beautiful state of Wisconsin. Yeah, it's it's uh, as you know, what well, you know what March is like here, right? Yeah, it's, it's miserable. Cold. It's freezing. It's it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm glad to be inside doing this. Awesome, man. So first of all, you were my professor for multiple years, and I'm sure uh, that was a nightmare that you've had to deal with. I apologize for any PTSD I may have caused you with my uh, horrible ability of being a student. Oh, no, I've seen worse. I've seen worse. Hey, all right. I'm I'm sure I have. Uh, Can't think of it. (laughs) No, no, no. It was a pleasure having you. And I actually remember this. I think it was maybe you were graduating or is it the end of your, your time there? And you had like a little sidekick that you always hung out with. Uh-huh. I don't, don't remember his name. I think he was in some of my classes too. You guys came to my office. You were, it was like time to graduate. And I, I said, so what are you guys doing? And I remember you said, uh, I'm going to give comedy a try. Oh yeah. Went home and told my wife, I said, this kid came to my office today. He's going to give comedy a try. What the hell? You know, who does that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it, well, I did a horrible disservice to the art. No, yeah, it turned out all right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> great. So let's talk. Thank you very much. You were honestly the greatest professor that I had, and you were always so supportive. I got kicked out of a couple of classes. Believe it or not, I was a little mouthy. I know it's stunning. I don't, see, I don't recall that. Maybe I was just too physically imposing. You didn't want to challenge my authority or something. Well, there was um, definitely that. You were also a very charismatic teacher, which I thought was helpful. I'll take that. I don't know if the, I don't know if my other, my students today would agree, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take. It. Um, so let's talk. So we got the census coming out right now. I also want to talk to you about uh, the midterm elections. What your predictions are on the heels of Doug Jones winning in Alabama? Obviously, a very unique case running against the theocrat Roy Moore. But a little bit more of an example of the potential blue wave, I would argue, is uh, the Pennsylvania. 18th soon to be defunct but with Connor Lamb uh, being able to pull off the victory there what are your thoughts on the midterm elections and do 
you think that this momentum that the Democratic Party seems to have will continue on, or do you think the Democratic Party might end up um, stumbling a little bit if they continue to have uh, more of a uh, purity test when it comes to their, um, you know, left-leaning politics? Right, right. Yeah, so I mean, right now, I mean, things look pretty good uh, for the Democrats. Uh, the, the races you pointed to, I think especially the Pennsylvania race, um, and, and even if you go back to there was a race in Georgia, maybe mm-hmm. there's in Oklahoma. And the key there is not whether the Democrats won or lost those seats, but they really beat the margin. You know, right. Uh, right. I mean, they were, you know, th- those were places where they should have been beaten badly. And even where they lost, you know, they lost by fairly narrow margins. The Alabama thing's kind of <laughs> kind of funny because, you know, like you say, a, 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 a theocratic uh, pedophile running on, on the Republican side. You know, I, I guess, I don't know, I, that might say something about the Alabama electorate that uh, the Democrat barely won that. I know, that's what I was thinking. Everyone was so happy that Doug Jones won. I'm like, he won by 1.5%. <laughs> yeah, right. You would have thought it would be a landslide. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but having said that, if that race had been held two years ago, I think uh, he 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 would he probably wouldn't have won that race. You know, the mood of the country generally, mm-hmm. at least toward the, the Republican Party, toward the president, uh, has changed quite a bit. Uh, so there are other indicators too. There are a lot of retirements right now. A lot of retirements, um, mm-hmm. almost record levels for this point in the cycle. Almost record levels of retirements, uh, opening up mostly Republican seats. Mm-hmm. So at the House level, anyway, the Republicans are going to end up defending a lot more territory than it looked like they would a year or two ago. Right. And there is this general sort of um, tide. Um, you know, it's, it's not so much a pro-Democratic tide, but a kind of an anti-Trump tide um, that I think should benefit the Democrats. And they should benefit anyway. It's a midterm election in the first term of the presidency. And usually that's tough for the incumbent president to, to defend. Right. We had a race here in Wisconsin, too, uh, a couple months ago, uh, um, somewhere out in the hinterlands. I can't remember exactly where, uh, but a state assembly seat that was opened up, and uh, Democrats won that quite surprisingly. Okay. So what do you you attribute uh, this to other than just anti-Trump? Because as we were talking before the show, he's at 42 percent, which is very high for Donald Trump. But as we saw with Obama also in 2010, the Democrats lost just countless House seats. I mean, just all across the country, 2010, 2012, 2014, uh, and so on. Uh, do you think uh, that what, what what other components go into a possible um, uh, series of victories for the Democratic Party? Well, one, one thing is just sort of almost mathematically, especially at the House level, they're just, they're just much more exposed. Uh, the, the Republicans are much more exposed than the Democrats are uh, by virtue of, of having won big in, in 2010 and then 2014. They had pretty substantial majorities. Mm-hmm. And even before the retirements, uh, they were having to defend a lot more seats. So you just expect almost mathematically Democrats would make some gains. Um, but I think also if, if you look over the last decade or so, there's been a kind of a very slow, gradual um, tilting toward the Democratic Party, at least in terms of party identification. The country is becoming slightly more Democratic, uh, reversing a, a, a trend from the 2000s, 1990s, 2000s, where Republicans were making some gains. Uh, but really, it's a, it's about the president, really. Yeah. Um, 
<clears throat> as goes the president, so goes his party. Um, and well, what do you think? I mean, as far as just getting your assessment from uh, the beautiful state of Wisconsin, yep. what what are his um, what's been the reaction to this presidency? Obviously, the tax plan being able to come through. What's going on right now with North Korea? Kim Jong Un meeting with Xi Jinping. Uh, looks like we might sit down t- at the table with uh, with a North Korean dictator for the first time. Um, what's the mood there that you're sensing? Because I was stunned, like I think a lot of people were on election night uh, 2016 when uh, when Wisconsin went red. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty surprising. Although, um, you know, if you read my book. Um, <laughs> Again, see- I have to read more of your books. No, there's one of the trends in the last uh, 20 years or so is that states like Wisconsin and Minnesota, uh, not so much Michigan, but Wisconsin and Minnesota kind of stand out in particular. They've been going Democratic in presidential elections, but not by the margins that they used to, Mm. at least relative to the national outcome. So Wisconsin's been kind of sliding toward much more competitive elections at the presidential level. Uh, I still am am surprised. I I think with uh, Clinton getting 53%, or I'm sorry, about 52% nationally uh, of the two-party vote, uh, there's no way she should have lost Wisconsin, and we and we know right uh, that she didn't campaign here. Right, and we also know it was less than a percentage point of the vote. So, uh, you know, uh, any number of things that we could all talk about that happened during the last week of the campaign, or during the fall campaign from outside sort any number of things, if they'd happened differently, I think. Trump loses Wisconsin. So what, what do you uh, think are some of those things? Because, I mean, you know, not to relitigate 2016, that's been done ad nauseum, but with Donald Trump sort of doing the equivalent, uh, I think a false equivalency when it comes to his sex scandals and Bill Clinton's sex scandals sort of tethering her to Bill, uh, being the ultimate anchor that might have sunk her, uh, what were some of the things that Wisconsin was feeling, uh, why they were willing to, uh, that led them to be willing to give someone like Donald Trump a chance? Did they just have that much mistrust in Hillary Clinton? And have you sensed a little bit of buyer's remorse at all? Well, I think there, I think there's clearly some buyer's remorse. Uh, but I think what was going on here is that, um, you know, the sort of Democratic core here in, in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee County, primarily African-American voters, you know, they still voted overwhelmingly for Clinton, not quite the margins that they did for Obama. And turnout was somewhat lower in Milwaukee uh, than it was during the Obama election. So there's that. And then you know that outside of Milwaukee, outside of Dane County, Wisconsin's a different place. I mean, it's it's pretty rural, mm-hmm. um, you know, middle of the road to conservative easily. Uh, and in some of those uh, uh, primarily white, conservative rural counties, they were really kind of energized by Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, but I, I still think, you know, if you look at Wisconsin, I don't remember the, the number of votes, but it was like eight tenths of a percentage point was the difference. And here's the thing. I, I think if you and I'm sure you've heard this before, but uh, if you take, you know, 70, 80,000 votes across Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and just redistribute them a little bit across all three states. Suddenly, the narrative of the campaign is how America rejected Trump and the anti-immigrant uh, narrative, the anti-free trade narrative. I mean, everything changes because there are you know, 70, 80,000 votes that if they'd gone the other way 
you know, would have uh, uh, given Clinton the win. Right. So, it was such a it was such a thin margin of victory. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Well, and and if nothing else, just nationally, I mean, this idea that the election showed that America supported Trump is absolutely bogus. Mm. I mean, the right combination of states supported Trump mm-hmm. uh, in terms of a popular sort of embracing of either side it was it was clearer that people were embracing clinton than they were trump it's just that they didn't happen to live in the right states so do you think because you know obviously to the victor goes the spoils and uh you know donald trump uh this narrative that he did carry all of these states obviously a very thin margin uh do you think because it was so thin uh, that will tend to um, validate the belief that the Democrats are going to absolutely crush in the midterms. Well, I think it, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it could feed into that. And the one thing is that, um, so part of it is about expectations too. Because mm. even if the Democrats, you know, win, uh, pick up, you know, 30 seats in the House and I don't know, uh, six seats in the Senate or, you know, something like that. The, the expectations are so high right now that even if they do relatively well, unless they, they just take control of the House and take control of the Senate, uh, it, in some ways it will be looked upon as, <laughs> as a rejection of the Democrats. You know, even they, if they win a little bit. Right. Even, even in these conditions, they couldn't pull it off, would be, would be the narrative then. And so they have to be a little careful about expectations. I mean, expectations are pretty important. Right. You know, we were talking. We were talking about the, the president having the, uh, this meeting with uh, uh, North Korea uh, coming up, and a couple of other things. And, you know, right now the, the thing is, expectations are so low for this guy that if he gets through some of these things without blowing up the world, they could be seen as, as sort of victories for him. Right. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the uh, great benefits of having very low approval ratings. Whenever you do anything remotely good, like for right. example, regarding the Stormy Daniels uh, scandal, which I don't, I hate the whole thing. It's it's just salacious television news nonsense to me. Um, but he hasn't tweeted about it, so he's getting yeah. he's getting praise oh. for not tweeting about it, like a, like a ten year old who didn't make a mistake. It's like what a grown up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I suspect somebody hit his phone. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, behind a bunch of Diet Cokes in the fridge or something. He'll find it eventually. Uh, so what do you think the, as far as the role of, um, of gerrymandering, redistricting? I mentioned the Pennsylvania 18. That's going to be uh, redrawn uh, after the Republicans uh-huh. sort of created that. What, what does this look like going forward? I mean, I know the Republicans, they've really outmaneuvered, to, in my opinion, and I want to hear your uh, more uh, professorial thoughts on it. It seems like they've outmaneuvered the Democratic Party when it comes to gerrymandering, redistricting. How do you think that's going to play in these midterms? Yeah, I think that um, they have kind of outmaneuvered the Democrats, but I, I think only because they're in charge in more places. If you look at states where Democrats are in charge and where the state isn't required to use some kind of independent commission, uh, I suspect you'd find those maps are gerrymandered pretty much in the Democratic Party's Mm -hmm. face. I mean, the Supreme Court just agreed to hear a case from Maryland, I think it was, uh, just a couple days ago. Uh, Maryland Republicans are complaining that the Democrats are essentially boxed them out. That uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's like they only hold one or two congressional seats in the whole state. Mm. Um, and so I, I think it's not because Democrats are um, uh, too civic-minded uh, to engage in this terrible right. practice. 
of gerrymandering. It's just that they don't, you know, they're not in control of the levers in enough places uh, uh, to do it. So it, it probably does give the Republican an advantage. Um, but there are limits, you know, there are limits to um, how successful those efforts can be. If there's a big tide uh, sort of pulling uh, a, a one party in one party's favor. So for instance, uh, one of the, one of the strategies, if you're gerrymandering a state is to, you know, pack votes into a couple of districts and just seed those to your, your opponents. So, so like the Democrats have a couple of very solid districts here in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. but then, you know, giving your own party, you know, comfortable margins in the remaining districts, but not cramming like super majorities of your own part, your own partisans into those districts. Mm -hmm. So you're a little bit exposed if there is a, a wave election that's going against your interest. Right. So we we could see changes um, e even in the face of gerrymandering. We could see some big changes in some of these states. Well, on a on a uh, local level, and which is also on a national level, we have Randy Bryce, who I've been following closely there in the district of Paul Ryan. Do you think there's any chance that Paul Ryan? Uh, uh, First of all, do you think Paul Ryan's more nervous than he expected to be? And second, do you think that this Randy Bryce uh, character, big union guy, looks like an everyday uh, Wisconsinite, uh, uh, at least on the outside? Do you think that he has a shot? I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think he'll, it's very clear that uh, he's putting together a pretty professional campaign and, yeah. and, and getting out of Democratic support to make a real effort there. I don't think so. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say pigs would fly first, uh, <laughs> but then, <laughs> well, but then I, I, I recall that in 1994, uh, my wife, who also teaches political science, told her class that pigs would fly first before the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives. Mm. She came to class the next day, and somebody had drawn a picture of a flying pig on the blackboard. That's, so I'm not. Gonna, I, well, they should have drawn a, uh, a a picture of a naked Rush Limbaugh because yeah, I'm pretty yeah. certain he was the reason they were able to take yeah, over. Had to do with it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think Ryan probably is uh, a little nervous. I mean, if you go back to '94, for instance, oh, I'm I'm blanking on the Dem the uh, uh, Democratic speaker at the time from Washington State. I'm blanking on his name then, but nobody expected that he was going to lose. And he was swept up in 94, mm. and he lost his seat, too. Um, I don't think he was in quite as safe a district as Ryan is. Uh, but, you know, I I think that some of these um, state legislative elections are, are surprising people um, in a way that should make uh, Republicans pretty nervous unless they really have a lock on their district. Right. So what do you think that will look like then if the, let's just say you're, you're right, the Democrats pick up some seats, uh, maybe not as overwhelming uh, as they would uh, as, they, as they would like or as some people believe uh, as well as they should do. What do you think Donald Trump looks like in 2020? I mean, it does seem like he is he's picking up a couple of uh, accolades the, throughout this sort of bizarre presidency of his. Uh, what do you think that would look like in 2020? And also just have. You know, we you we hear this word unprecedented like far too much. It's unprecedented how many times people have said the word unprecedented. Uh, yeah. What do you think about this White House from your from your expertise? Is it as crazy as it seems with uh, the constant in and out of um, 
of uh, employers, basically, or employees, rather, you know, whether it be the chief of staff being gone uh, and replaced, whether it be John Bolton rolling through. Uh, what do you think about this White House in general? Is it as crazy as it looks? It sure seems to be. It's, I mean, it seems to be about what it looks to be, to be actually. I mean, it's, uh, and I think that, you know, part of, part, I mean, part of it is, I mean, almost all of it is the president. But part of it is, of course, his personality and his own sort of management style. But it's also that the guy has no political experience. He's never held elective office before. He does not have decades of relationships with other office holders, other party leaders who, who know how to run the mechanisms of government. I mean, when Obama right. was when Obama was elected, you know, he had at least been in politics. He'd only been in the Senate for a couple of years, but he'd been in politics for a while, and he surrounded himself with political professionals. Mm. He put he put seasoned uh, political uh, people uh, to head most of the executive agencies, the cabinet departments, and I think. They were also people who were pretty committed to him. And, you know, with Trump, I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, he, you know, right off the bat, um, appointing uh, Priebus as uh, chief of staff, right. and they not exactly had the closest relationship prior to that. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't seem like uh, the type of arrangement that's destined to work. So I think it is pretty crazy. It, it's yeah. uh, there's got to be a lot of turmoil. It has to be kind of just a, a terrible place to work right now. Um, yeah. A lot of uncertainty, and you know, you're in the in the public eye, and and uh, you know, it used to be you could sort of trade on this. You, you work for the White House for a while, you, you leave, you get great jobs, and it seems like that's no, not so much the case anymore. Right. It seems like you might get a couple more Twitter followers, but uh, yeah. yeah, perhaps not the big positions that other uh, individuals had. What's the what's the feel right now in the classroom? Uh, you know, we hear all of these stories about university madness, political correctness gone crazy, all this kind of stuff, which I give it. I take everything with a massive grain of salt. What are your students thinking right now? Do you have some Trump supporters in there? Do you have some people? I'm sure you have some Antifa or whatever this all this madness that's going on right now. What are the students thinking, and, and what has that experience been for you uh, teaching now in this kind of new world? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. What I find more than anything is I think there's a greater reluctance among students to, you know, sort of share their ideas, share their thoughts. And I don't think it's I don't think it's just like, you know, Trump supporters un, unwilling to share their thoughts. Uh, I think it's people across the spectrum. Like, you know, they're they don't want to get into an argument. You know, they don't want to they don't want to they don't want things to get messy. Now, uh, you know, I, well, I play I that's, play the, that's definitely changed uh, from when I was there, because I recall getting in some uh, arguments for sure. Well, and I kind of remember. So you were there in the early 2000, 2003, four, somewhere yep. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can remember that I would have in my classroom, you know, there was a group of kids who were working for the Republicans and they were, you know, they'd interned with Republican state legislators There was a group of kids on the Democratic side and they all knew it. And, you know, they all they would all sort of, um, you know, engage each other. They would engage me. And, and it was fine. It was perfectly fine. And I think now I think that in part uh, at the national level in the media, on national politics, it just becomes sort of so ugly that I find students are hesitant to engage. Now, I'll tell you also, I mean, the courses I teach are not exactly highly politicized. I mean, I teach, you know, the research methods or survey research. 
so I'm not, you know, I'm not teaching courses on equality in American politics or, or something like this, where you're going to get a lot of political divides. Uh, but I do sense a, a kind of a hesitancy to really kind of uh, engage with contemporary politics. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's probably the case for a lot of our faculty as well. Well, let's get into some of that then. Let's get into some polling data and let's talk about the census. Uh, there is some controversy because they are now asking if you're a citizen or not uh, on the census. Evidently, they they took that off in the 1950s. Uh, what do you think about that? And then also I want to ask, what do you think or can you go through a process of what makes polling data valid versus invalid? Because Sometimes you see MSNBC had a poll, and I forget what the question was, uh, because the plus or minus was seven points. Yeah. It's totally not scientific. They could just they can say anything. It's a fourteen point swing for crying out loud. So, what should people look for when they're actually mining for data that is indicative of the truth uh, versus just a lot of confirmation bias that's out there? And then also with the census. But let's start with the polling data. Um, and how to how to conduct a proper poll? Not in the most boring terms, uh, but yeah. just you know, just a little base stuff, and then what to look for so we can actually get some real information out here. Yeah, well, so uh, there are a couple, couple of keys there. One is uh, how the sample was drawn for the poll. I mean, how did they sample people? Uh, and what we're looking for is something as close to a random sample as we can get. That's a little hard to achieve perfectly. Uh, but the polling organizations should provide details about their sampling method. If they don't, then you need to be skeptical, or at least until you've dug a little deeper uh, to find out how, how they actually conducted their survey. And the other thing is, is sample size. Um, you mentioned this poll with a plus or minus seven percentage points that probably had a sample size of about two or 300 people. Mm -hmm. Now, technically, there's nothing wrong with that, except it gives you such a wide variation in you know, what the outcome could actually be, then it, it's not very useful. Um, so, you know, you want to see surveys with you know, upwards of five, six, seven hundred respondents. Nowadays, with um, internet polling, it's pretty easy to get several thousand respondents, uh, and, and that, that's helpful as well. Um, well, does you know, the internet polling, does that lead to more of uh, kind of, I don't know, mining out of the uh, out of a well of of a single political ideology, uh, do you think? Because if like Huffington Post puts out a poll, that's going to be Huffington Post readers versus if if uh, a red state or something does. Yeah. Well, the key is that like Huffington Post isn't just polling their own uh, readership or red state isn't just polling their own viewership either. Um, and I think. Most of the reputable uh, pollsters that use uh, online polling primarily, um, they make a real effort to randomize it as much as possible. There's one outfit, for instance, that actually starts with or started with a huge random sample of telephone numbers and then contacted people through this random sample to say, are you interested in participating in our polling organization? We will we'll buy you the internet hookup. We'll, we'll make sure you have a computer. Mm. So, so they have a, a, a fairly literally a random sample of individuals that are using their, um, that, that are participating in their internet polls. A lot of other organizations will try to do something like that, but on the back end, after they get the results, what they do, it's called post stratification. What they do is they look at the, uh, at the, the data and they say, uh, well, um, 
let's see. So in our survey, uh, geez, you know, seven percent of respondents are tall, redheaded guys from Wisconsin, and it should be two percent. Mm. Okay, uh, so they kind of adjust adjust it so that the numbers they they present uh, are based on what the sample should look like, given what the population looks like. So you can be, I think, pretty confident in uh, some of those, some of the larger, like the YouGov. Uh, I'm blanking on uh, uh, some of the other names, uh, Knowledge Networks. Um, uh, there's another one. Is it Qualtrics? No, SurveyMonkey uh, now is doing that as well. So okay. you can be pretty confident in their results. And, you know, polling uh, kind of got a black eye after the election, and it was, I think, pretty un undeserved. If you look at the national polls, and remember, they weren't polling, the national polls weren't polling about electoral votes. They were polling about who, who the people are voting for. And if you look at the average outcome of, of you know, six or seven of the leading national polls, what you see is they were pretty much right on the money, hmm. pretty much right on the money. It's those state polls in a few states that were pretty far off and created problems for forecasters and people like myself who would look at previous trends in the states and then say, based on those previous trends and the current polls, here's what we expect to happen. And in some of those states, the state polls were just way off the mark. So it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, uh, the state polling was less accurate, but the national polling was pretty much on the money. So uh, regarding the census, what do you think, um, wh what uh, um, predictions do you have? I mean, obviously, we're becoming a much more diverse country. Uh, what do you think about the citizenship question? Do you think that shows uh, innate bias uh, by the Trump administration, or do you think that's a valid question? Uh, what, are you, what are you expecting to see here? Yeah, so that, there's, I think uh, there's a little bit of confusion on this. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly what question they want to add, but currently the census has some way to determine the number of citizens and non-citizens living in the country. And it's probably through a combination of different questions that they ask. And I'm not, not exactly sure what they currently ask, but it sounds like they're wanting to be much more upfront with a, a citizenship question. Uh, um, and I think the, the primary concern there is that among the, um, non-citizen population, whether they are documented or undocumented, that this could frighten people away from actually participating in the survey, uh, in the census survey. And then what happens is uh, you have undercounts as a result of that in places where lots of uh, immigrants live, um, uh, California, Texas, uh, uh, Arizona, large cities in particular, uh, where you've got large immigrant populations. So there's a real fear that this is a sign of the census being politicized. Uh, generally, in the last couple of cycles, Republicans have wanted there to be sort of um, uh, less strenuous effort to count everybody who should be counted. Democrats uh, are more in favor of counting everybody who should be counted. You know, on both sides, because of they see political gain to their position. Uh, so I think that the real concern is that what it will do is, is kind of discourage participation uh, in the immigrant communities uh, of people who are, and, and potentially even among immigrants who are citizens, who for whatever reason, it just makes them nervous, uh, um, which is, is easy to understand if you look at the immigration rhetoric from the last campaign and even 
the continued rhetoric uh, during the uh, uh, first year and a half of the presidency. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. This is uh, uh, immigration was certainly the hot button issue. As soon as he went down the el- uh, the escalator, it immediately yeah, yeah. became uh, a hot button issue. Yeah, no, it was it was front and center. I'm actually I'm working on a paper right now. In fact, I'm taking a break uh, talking to you uh, about uh, immigration in 2016 and and about about naturalized citizens and as a group how they sort of react to immigration politics as well. Well, um, what is their reaction? Because I've talked to some DACA kids, uh, well, now adults. Um, there does seem to be a massive chilling effect going on, and people are, they are uh, scared, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're pretty scared. Um, and this is, it's, it's a, become a partisan issue in the last 15 years, much more than it used to be, in part because of the, uh, partisan consequences of immigration. In if you go back to uh, 1980, 1990, you still had somewhere around 70 percent of naturalized citizens, so immigrants who become citizens, around 70 percent of them were still white. Mm. In, in the time between the 80s, since 1990, that is that has dwindled to about 23 percent. That's interesting. So these so immigrants who come to the U.S. and eventually become citizens and and eventually become voters, um, these are people of Latino descent, Asian and Pacific Island descent, some of them African descent, Middle Eastern descent, and these are all groups that, you know, have have certainly come to be solidly democratic groups. So there's a, a real sort of political consequence to increasing immigration, and uh, I think that. Um, that's probably part of the explanation for uh, um, the Republican opposition to immigration. Well, as always, uh, I learned so much when you when uh, when you uh, inform me on these things. I did not realize so seventy percent of the immigrants in the eighties were white, and now you you're saying uh, more recent uh, only twenty three percent. So obviously that's a what is that sixty seven percent or so or what I don't know seventy seven percent are are non white. So there is a direct. Um, racial component here. I mean, how much do you think race really plays into this? Oh, uh, I, I think it, 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 it <laughs> to I mean, the president hugely. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, look, it, um, it's not just that the immigrate immigrant population has grown. It's, it's grown and it's changed and racial and ethnic minorities are democratic voting groups. Why do you think that is professor? Cause if you look at, you know, Hispanics, you have a lot of Catholic Hispanics, you have a lot of Cubans out in, uh, down in Florida, hate Castro, hate socialism. I mean, can't the, rep- I mean, of course, Donald Trump did surprisingly well with the Hispanic vote, uh, you know, kind of in comparison, considering, of course, uh, his rhetoric against that community. Why can't uh, the Republican Party understand that's where the country is going and embrace those people? Because morally, they seem to be in, in the same kind of camp. Well, I think there are a lot of Republicans in, in, the, in the party who, who think that's not a bad strategy. Uh, because you're right. I mean, if you if you look at Latino voters, uh, even black voters are pretty conservative on abortion, really yeah. pretty conservative on gay rights, on, on lots of social issues that aren't directly tied to civil rights or, or social programs for the poor. Blacks are pretty conservative. You want to talk about religious people. Uh, if you look at religious attendance and, and sort of religious beliefs, the African-American community is is you know it looks in that way like a, a republican community mm. 
Latinos, uh, the same uh, on, on abortion, uh, uh, also a very religious uh, group. Uh, Asian American voters, uh, I'm trying to think, I just looked at this the other day, pretty conservative or, or at least not more liberal than Republicans on abortion, um, gay marriage, about the same. Uh, uh, Asian American voters are, are on average uh, uh, financially be better off than, than other race minorities. So you're right, in some ways, these look like they could be Republican voting groups. Here's the problem, though. Uh, where, they, where these groups differ uh, with the Republican Party is on issues like immigration, mm -hmm. on issues related to race and racism. And I think they see those issues as more central to their own lives mm -hmm. and kind of, kind of sense a, a bit sort of like a group threat uh, from Republican policies. And I, I think that uh, some members of the Republican Party, some of the uh, sort of Republican dissidents now, I guess you'd call them, mm -hmm. uh, have argued in favor of more generous immigration policies. Uh, I think in part sensing that what's going on is the sort of Trump approach to immigration is, is uh, sort of solidifying uh, um, the Democratic base in these groups. Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. If you look, if you ignore race and ethnicity and look at some of the issue positions that members of these groups have, they could very well be Republican voters. Right. Uh, but on issues that are more important, uh, immigration, uh, racism, um, they uh, uh, they side with the Democrats. Yeah. And at some point, I think the Republicans are going to have to start thinking more long term because this is all going to come to an end at some point and they're going to need to win. You know, if they, I'm not. I mean, I mean, to say they got lucky isn't. I, I don't mean that uh, you know to denigrate what uh, Republicans did in 2016, but look, um, that white share of the electorate is shrinking and shrinking and mm -hmm. shrinking, uh, and maybe geographically the dispersion of of, of uh, minority vote will unfold in in a way that Republicans are still able to win presidential elections every once in a while, but they can't bank on that. Look, right. Ben, since 1992, from 1992 to 2016, they won the popular vote twice in this country. Twice. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Uh, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Once, was it? Uh, once. Well, they didn't yeah. win. Yeah. 2004. 2004, they won the popular vote. That's the only time. Wow. That's, and, that's interesting. And the, the core of their electorate, the white vote, is shrinking. You now it's becoming a little you know, solidified and energized, right. uh, but it's shrinking. And long-term, I think the best strategy, you know, unless of course you're philosophically opposed for certain reasons to um, uh, more liberal uh, immigration policies, I think the a, a better strategy is to try to remove that as an issue, remove that as a source of division. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the uh, party could benefit from that. Well, do you find an irony with the Electoral College? It seems like uh, it was set up to benefit the minority, right? It was it was set up to benefit uh, states that might be disenfranchised because they don't have uh, the, the, the quantity of people. Uh, it, it seems ironic in some ways that the Republican Party is the one that benefits the most from it. Well, it certainly has. Uh, it certainly has most recently. You know, it, it is. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons the. Uh, for the Electoral College was to, you know, just in case the people made a mistake and elected a knucklehead to president. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the idea was that the the you know the elders, the electors, would be wiser than the people and would step in and, and overturn the election. Uh, but really, I don't think there's ever been a time in, in American history where the electoral college has served the country well. And back in the 1800s and um, the 1870s, I think it was, um, I'm going to get my presidents mixed up here, but uh, essentially a deal was struck to get rid of Reconstruction in the South in, in, in exchange for electing a, I think it was a Republican candidate uh, to the presidency uh, by the Southern states, giving their electoral votes to the Republican. And of course, so that, in that in that time, that was a liberal uh, or more left-leaning person, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that got rid of Reconstruction. You know, terrible thing, terrible thing. Uh, other periods in time, it's, you know, there were a couple times when it, it was just sort of a flukish thing. Um, I just don't see that it's ever, ever worked out well right. for the American people. I mean, the only thing that's all that the only sort of constant when there's been a hiccup is that the person who's preferred by more people was not elected. So I don't see much use for it, uh, yeah. frankly. But, but I think it's one of those things that uh, we're going to be stuck with for a while. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be going. As a matter of fact, how the heck would we get rid of it? You have to have a constitutional amendment. Okay, so that's two-thirds of both houses, right? Or both uh, the Senate and the yeah. House? Yeah, and then it has to go through the states, and I think, uh, what, was, what is it, 35 states or something like that have to approve it. Uh, uh, there is a, There were a group of states that were working on a compact together. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that this will ever uh, right. get pulled off, but a group of states whose total number of electoral votes is enough to essentially award the presidency. We're entering into a compact uh, in which they would agree that whoever won the popular vote would get their electoral votes. So that, that would effectively denude the uh, electoral college. But I don't know if that's even going to get pulled off. That, right. that's, a, that's a hard thing to, to, well, uh, to pull up to. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your Easter weekend. Um, and, and from writing your article, just just lastly, um, I just want to get your sense of what's the mood? What's your mood? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? Where do you think we are as a country? There's so much, I, I you know, there, it just seems like for a lot of folks, they're, they're kind of uh, going through their day with a dark cloud or an orange cloud, I suppose, uh, kind of hovering over them. What's your mood uh, of the country right now? What's your take and are you optimistic for the future? <laughs> uh, not very. Not very. Uh, you know, at some level, what's going on in the country right now is just a continuation of a trend we've seen in the last couple of decades. And it would have been different if Clinton had been elected. But, you know, the craziness would have still been there. The uh, social media craziness, the, the divisions uh, would have been pretty intense still. And what I what I see is, you know, people who don't support Trump, people who didn't vote for him, people were Democrats, you know, they feel at some level sort of disenfranchised and, and shut out. Trump supporters are, are pretty miserable, too, because from their perspective, everybody's ganging up on Trump. I, mean, I don't think there's anybody out there who's really happy right now mm. uh, who, who thinks like, oh, yeah, this is a great environment. I think um, the only person that's really happy right now is Roseanne because her show is uh, doing very well. I, did you watch it? I didn't I, watch it. I, I actually I, did watch it. I watched it last night with my girlfriend, and it's classic Roseanne. I, the jokes yeah. are great, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I look forward to seeing it. I, I meant to tape it. I don't I don't can't remember where I was, but uh, yeah, I mean that's yeah, I love that show when it was on before. Uh, yeah, good to see everybody still alive. <laughs> I know I was I'm actually stunned, uh, but I'm I'm sorry I cut you off for your final. Oh, no, no, that's fine. It's it's just you know I I uh, yeah it's just the moods the moods not great you know and I've got I've got kids sixteen year old and uh, she nineteen years old and. You know, just thinking about the political environment they're growing up in compared to the one I grew up in, which was, you know, it was the late 70s, early 80s. It was, uh, you know, Carter and and, uh, and Reagan and people were, were mad and so on. But uh, things have just changed so much now that um, uh, I'm not very, not very optimistic. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Thomas Holbrook. Get out there, get his book, Altered States, Changing Population, Changing Parties, or Changing Populations, Changing Parties, and the Transformation of the American Political uh, Landscape. Uh, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. My All pleasure. Right. Professor Thomas Holbrook, everyone. All right, thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, find me on Twitter at Ben Kissel, Instagram at Ben Kissel One. Email me at thelastpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, uh, and I'll read your emails uh, coming up here on a show in the very near future. All right, everyone, hail yourselves. Talk to you soon. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.